Hey, good morning, Mosaic. How's everybody doing? Yeah? <laughs> Woo! Good. Um, man, I'm sitting back there and uh, singing and worshiping with you guys and, and just reflecting on the words of that song. Um, I love that song, Fire Fall Down. Right, fire fall down on us, we pray. Show me your heart, show me your way, show me your glory. Fire fall down in this place. And, uh, but I'm sitting there back there thinking and, and singing. I'm just wondering, like, do we really want that? I mean, really? Is that, is that really, really what we want? Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, I guess we'll find out. Uh, this morning's message is what you call a space maker. And um, we're going to probably free up some seats this morning after this week. And that's not my goal, but uh, it's inevitable. Um, we were in the series called Getting Past Your Past. And, uh, you know, we uh, started with talking about labels, and, and we talked about how every week gets a little bit more challenging and a little bit harder, and, and that's true. This morning is that. I, I was actually was planning on talking about failure uh, this morning, and I love, I love teaching on failure, partly because I have so many great stories of personal failure. Um, if you've been around Mosaic for any time, you hear them all the time, and I'm not running out. I, <laughs> I'm adding new ones all the time, and uh, so I'm going to share stories about personal failure uh, until the day I die. Um, and I love, and for me, like, I love faith and I love risk and failure is inevitable when you're living in that place. And so I love teaching on that and I was planning on it. And God's just been messing me up and, and wrecking me as, as I've been getting ready for this message. And, and, and I, as I was reflecting and praying and, and just preparing and thinking about, okay, getting past your past. Honestly, as I think about the faces in this room and the stories that I know and I reflect on my own life, what really is, is the, the root issue of, of holding us back and, and, and the inability to get past our past? And it's not failure. It's really not. Um, the thing behind the thing behind the thing is something different altogether. And, and so um, I just had to change course. And just so you know, this morning, um, we're going to be talking about guilt. And um, uh, guilt is an interesting thing because it seems to be unique uh, to the human experience. Um, animals, we don't see animals experiencing guilt. It, it seems to just be us. I, I remember living in, when we were in L.A. and Paige was like two, um, I, uh, I was so sick of Elmo because um, that's all she wanted to watch was Elmo. And it's like, God, kill me now. Like, I'm going to drop kick this TV out with the balcony. And so I decided, like, I was going to change, like, what she liked. And I, like, for me, like, I love, if I had, I don't have cable TV uh, anymore, but if I had it, I'd be watching ESPN, the History Channel, and like the Discovery Channel. Um, and, and so I love, like, I love nature, I love all of that stuff. And so I decided I was gonna get my daughter hooked on this and watch some like really substantial content other than Elmo. And, uh, and so I bought her, not me, uh, Planet Earth Blu-ray. And so we were, were watching this and at first like she's loving it and, and just totally into it. It's gorgeous, you know, and you're in the ocean and you're watching these incredible fish and the scenery, you're just like, how did they film that? It's all good. And then you get to certain parts real quick and you realize, like, this is not for kids, some of this. Um, and so we get to, like, part where there's, like, the lions and they're, like, stalking, like, antelope or something like that. And uh, they're stalking them and they, they give chase and, you know, they just wait for, like, the lame one or the sick one or the elderly one to start falling back or the baby one. Um, and they isolate it and they just pounce on that thing and rip it apart, you know, and you're just like, sweet, Jesus. Uh, uh, you know, and Paige is, like, looking at us, you know, we're like, ah, oh, they're playing, they're wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> in ketchup, you know, um, and, uh, and it's just horrific, and it's violent, and, and you're watching this thing, and like, you never see, like, nature is just brutal, you never see a lion afterwards sit back with remorse, you know, 
Like, I'm so disappointed in myself. Really? Like, the, the baby one? I'm better than that, you know? You don't see that. Uh, but when it comes to the human experience, um, it's, I mean, this is something that we all do. Like, I don't, I don't know if you can remember back to, like, the first real experience of remorse. Like, the first time you can remember, just, like, feeling that guilt. Um, but I do. When I, was, when I was, I don't know how old I was. I was a kid. I grew up in a small town. Um, and one of the best things about growing up in a small town is you kind of have the run of the town. You know, parents just kind of let their kids do whatever, or at least they did for us. And so their neighborhood kids were all over the place, and you just kind of share backyards and all this stuff. And there was this dog in our neighborhood that just drove me crazy. Um, it also wandered wherever it wanted to, and it always came to our house. There was this family, and uh, they had this dog, and it was just like this little yippy dog that was like this big. And if you came within a half block of it, it was just nonstop, like yipping, yipping, yipping. Harmless, but obnoxious. Uh, so one day it was in our yard, and um, I remember as a boy, like I don't, I just remember picking up a rock, and it was a big rock in my little hand, and uh, and I remember running up to this dog, and it turned to run away, and I heaved this rock at it, and caught it right in the back of the head, and it went end over end, and just dropped like a, a sack of potatoes. And, uh, and I don't say that to shock you. I mean, that's just, that's what I did. And I remember for the first time experiencing, like, thinking, oh, my, oh my God, like, what did I just do? And it's the first time I remember thinking, I, I can't, I can't believe that I just did that. And, uh, you know, for the record, the dog was fine. Um, it, it eventually got up and went home and uh, never liked me. I tried to reconcile things, but... It wouldn't forgive me, so I put that on the dog, because I tried. Um, you know, but I, I ran to my room, and I remember just weeping. Like, really, I just overwhelmed. It's like, I just couldn't believe that I had done that. And that was the first time I experienced that, but it would not be the last. Because guilt and remorse and, and shame would be something that I would experience time and time again in my lifetime. And the longer that I do this, and the more people I meet, um, the more I realize that uh, the guilt is just universal, it seems, to the human experience. We all experience it. The people who don't um, end up in institutions, right? whether it be prison or whether it be a mental institution, right? people that don't feel remorse or guilt uh, to protect them from harming themselves or harming others. But for the rest of us, uh, we experience guilt. And, and the longer that I go, the more that I'm just beginning to realize like, we, just, we don't know what to do with this sense of guilt. We don't know how to understand it. We don't know how to translate it. We don't know what to do with it. Um, we don't know. And, and the truth is, uh, some of us sh should feel guilt. Um, but we don't know what to do with it. And, uh, and so as we get going, like just a little caveat. Like you got to know, when we talk about guilt, like I, I don't take talking about this subject uh, lightly. Um, because I recognize, like, for me, I don't, you gotta know, I don't consider myself to be a very religious person. Personally, I believe that all religion is empty and dead and only leads to death, whether it be Christianity or Hinduism, uh, Islam, uh, it's all empty. Jesus didn't come to establish a religion. Uh, he came to free us from sin and death and ignite a movement. So I don't consider myself a religious person, but I do know that as a pastor, like I'm perceived to be a, litter, a leader in organized religion. And the truth is, when it comes to guilt, Guilt is one of those things that has been used and abused by Christian leaders and religious leaders and other types of leaders to enslave people and to manipulate people, control them, beat them down, 
throughout human history. Um, so you have to know, like, I, I don't take this lightly. And, and if you've been around Mosaic for a while, you know, we talk about the fact that we don't want to use uh, guilt as the primary motivating factor uh, for being the church or building the church. Because um, the truth is, honestly, I could come here every week and just use the pulpit as, as, a, as a place to bully people. And I could beat you down, and I could say every week, you know what? God is so disappointed in you. He's ashamed. He's angry. He stands at the door with a lightning bolt. So you need to be here. You need to give. You need to serve. I mean, you see where this goes? And the real, some of you would leave, rightfully so, I would say. But a lot of people would come and stay, and we could build a big church. And my salary would grow, and this church would grow, and we could build a nice building. But we don't want to be that. We don't want to do that because I, I believe that that just crushes spiritual vitality. But here's the, here's the problem. And, and here's the other side of the coin, the other side of the pendulum where I think a community like Mosaic tends, if we're going to err anywhere, I think this is where the temptation is. Because we're so young and because we live in a culture that's greatly influenced by postmodernism, right, we tend to reject ideas of universal truth, right? absolute truth. We don't like that idea. Uh, if we're going to buy into any idea of truth, we want it to be on our terms. Right? How much do you like when somebody comes to you and says, you're wrong. This is where I'm at. This is what I believe. And the insinuation is, you are wrong. Right? What's our response to that, right? It's defensiveness. It's anger. It's guilt. Try that at work sometime. Just dare you. Go up to somebody and be like, hey, you know what? I'm right. You're wrong. You're going to hell. Whatever. Well, the response isn't good. Right, if we have a cultural value maybe that's paramount, isn't it tolerance? Right, it's like, yeah, you know what? You can be passionate about your faith and be a Christian and do that whole thing. That's great for you. Right? This is where I'm at. This is what I believe. And this is going to be okay for me. And as long as you keep that over there and you don't come over here, we're cool with each other. Right? The one thing we are intolerant of is intolerance. Right? And so we don't know what to do with this idea of guilt. And anytime somebody makes us feel guilty, right, I think there's this, this visceral reaction inside of us that we just want to be like, you know what? Screw you back off. I'm going to decide what's true for me. Right? I, I think that's, that's our temptation. And so we tend to avoid guilt. Um, and we don't want to have these conversations. And, and I'm just afraid that if, if we don't have a candid conversation and actually look guilt straight in the face and ask where it comes from, and maybe if we should feel it, that we end up creating a God and a religion that is easy and not true, and we cherry-pick from the Bible and decide, you know what, I'm going to buy into that, I'm going to buy into that. I don't really like that, so I'm going to ignore that. And we get so far off. And so we've got to have this conversation, right? Honestly, as a pastor, like, I just think the most loving thing that I can do is we can open up the scriptures and just have a candid, open conversation about what it really says and deal with the implications together. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. And just so you know, there's going to be some of you that hate this. And you might not come back. And man, I pray that that doesn't happen. Honestly, that's my biggest fear in even saying this. Heck, I had a hard time sleeping last night. Because I don't want to shortcut what God is doing in any of your life. But watering down the message and making it more palatable and changing what the scriptures actually say are true isn't loving either. And honestly, for some of you, while some of you might hate this and run the other direction, for some of you, this is going to be the message that sets you free. And that's a good enough reason, I think, to have it. And so what do we do? What do we do with guilt? How do we translate it? Why is it that some people experience it more than others? Some people not so much. Some people just constantly. 
and, and how are we to respond to this? I, I want to begin by looking into, a, starting with a packed little verse. In 2 Corinthians chapter um, 7, verse 10, this is what it says. It says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. All right, so immediately we're clued into the fact that there are two very different kinds of grief, two different, very different kinds of shame or, or, or guilt, remorse, and, and there's one that, that ultimately is, is good because of what it produces in our life, and there's one that's bad because of what it produces in our life. There's a grief, there's a sorrow that leads ultimately to, to life, to salvation and life without regrets. But then there's this other kind of grief that only sucks the life out of us and leaves us with death. I'll give you an example of, of what I mean. All right, so we'll start with, I want to start with just this idea of, of godly grief. All right, in 2 Samuel 11, um, the Bible tells us that King David uh, is up on his rooftop and uh, he's surveying his kingdom, everything that he has, and he looks over and he sees this woman also bathing on another roof, all right? Uh, so women, just to help us out, take that inside, right? There's, that's one of the morals of the story. Don't bathe outside and you'll help us all out. Um, but David is up there and he sees this beautiful woman bathing on another nearby rooftop and he turns to his servant and he says, who's that? And he turns to him and says, oh, that's, um, that's Uriah's wife. Uh, you know Uriah, right? He's, um, he's, he's a soldier who's fighting the battle that you're supposed to be at, uh, who's not with his naked wife, as every husband longs to be, right? Um, because he's fighting your battle where you're supposed to be. That's who that is. Right? And the sarcasm is totally lost on David. And he says, get her for me. And, and so he does. Servant goes and gets her. And David sleeps with her and gets her pregnant. And so he has a problem. So he goes to plan A, and he writes some orders to send them to the general to send Uriah home, and it's a good idea. He's going to send Uriah home, let him go into his own house, and I don't think this is like in a stretch of the imagination, right? Because we know when a husband has gone from his wife for months at battle and he comes home, the reunion is sweet, right? So David's thought is, you know what, he's going to come home, he's going to be with his wife, sleep with his wife, and uh, then lo and behold, she'll be pregnant, she is pregnant, and I'll be off the hook. But there's just a problem. So Uriah comes home, come to find out he's made a vow to the Lord that he will not sleep with his wife until he wins the battle for the king. Right? So he's a better man than David. And he's made this vow. And so he, David moves to plan B. And plan B is he invites Uriah into his place and starts serving him the good wine. Right? And if you don't know what the good wine is, right, if it screws off the top or if it's in a box, it's not good wine. Um, there's a cork involved. All right, not that you can't like that wine, it's fine, but the global wine community will tell you if the top screws off, it's, it's malt liquor, it's not wine. Um, so he's, he gives them good wine, and he keeps serving, keeps the glasses coming, serves them until his, his knees are wobbly, and then he sends him home. <laughs> and Uriah is such a man of character uh, that he doesn't trust himself. He's had a little too much to drink, he's going home to be with his wife, and he doesn't trust himself to keep his vow. So he lays down on the porch and sleeps in order to keep his vow to the Lord and to his king. So David moves on to plan C. And plan C is he writes some executive orders on a sheet of paper, and he seals it, and he gives it to Uriah, and Uriah hops on his horse and goes back to the lines of battle, gives that to the general, 
and it is ultimately his death sentence. And David has written instructions to the general to move Uriah from the back to the front lines and to pull back and let Uriah be killed. And that's exactly what happened. So he kills Uriah. And when word gets back to David that Uriah is dead. And David responds by saying, Woe is me, my good friend Uriah, my faithful servant is dead. What, what on earth could I do to honor him? Oh, what could I do to show him my gratitude for his sacrifice, for what he has laid down his life for his king and his nation? Hey, I know. I will take his wife to be my own, and I will care for her as she is my own. And so he does. And lo and behold, she becomes pregnant, already pregnant. And David thinks, I hit it. Very next chapter, Nathan the prophet shows up. And Nathan comes into David and he goes, David, I need your help ruling on a situation. We've got a problem. So David says, hit me. What's the situation? He says, there is a man, and he had a lamb, and he loved that lamb like it was his child. And he cuddled with that lamb. He let it lay its head on his chest, and he loved it like it was his own kid. But his neighbor had a hundred sheep. And his neighbor went and stole the lamb from that man and killed the lamb, or killed the man, and kept the lamb for himself. What should we do? David, true to form, says, bring that man here and we will kill that man. Right? And, and Nathan goes, you're the man. That's you. Right? And you think he'd be picking up on the hints like along the way, like, oh, this sounds familiar. And he is a prophet, um, but he doesn't. He says, we will kill that man. And Nathan says, you are the man. That's you. And immediately, David rips his clothes and begins to weep. All right, now here's where we need to dig into the story because this is where uh, godly guilt and worldly guilt parts ways. Right? He is caught red-handed in his sin. What is his response going to be? And, and it tells us this. It says that David uh, goes into the temple and he falls face down. And this is what he says. He says, against you and you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. All right, backtrack a little bit. Okay, we've got, we've got adultery. Uh, we've got deceit, we've got murder, we've got more deceit. Uh, I would say that he sinned against uh, well, a number of different people. Uriah for one, Bathsheba for another. Right? But he says, no, Lord, unto you and you alone have I sinned. Right? And this is where worldly guilt and godly guilt part ways. Right? Worldly guilt is very, very different. Right? Godly guilt says, ultimately, my wrongdoing, my brokenness, my sin is against you, God. But worldly, worldly grief is very different. Let me just give you a working definition of worldly grief. Worldly grief or, or worldly regret uh, is when you feel sorry for something you did because it backfires on you. Right? And so the mirage that you've been keeping, the roof gets ripped off it and people see who you really are. And you're more angry about the consequences of your actions than you are broken about what you've done. Right? And so this is, oh, my wife, I've been unfaithful to my wife and she's leaving me. I can't believe this. Right? Or it's, I, I lost my job because I was lacking integrity and I'm so upset. I can't believe this is happening to me. Or my children don't want a relationship with me because of the way that I've treated them or I've treated their mom. can't believe this. Right? This is, uh, uh, this is the, the knee-jerk reaction of a proud heart. This isn't brokenness. It's very, very different. Right? You want a, a modern-day, really good modern example, recent example of worldly grief? Lance Armstrong. Anybody here watch the interview with Oprah? Anybody? A few of you? Um, I love, like, I have admired Lance Armstrong for a long time. 
And, uh, and so this was one that honestly hurt quite a bit because uh, he's been a hero and he's had this fairy tale story and you know, rising from cancer and winning the Tour de France seven times uh, and to find out that it was all really a fairy tale. He's cheating the whole time. Uh, is heartbreaking. And um, yeah, and so you know, if you watch the interview, uh, it's really obvious, it's really clear that he has a lot of regret, a lot of guilt. Uh, he definitely regrets losing $75 million in sponsorships. Like, you made that clear. Right? And he, he regrets um, being banned for life from all USADA-sanctioned events. Um, he regrets having to step down from Live Strong, which is the cancer uh, research and benefit organization that he raised, that has raised $500 million to date. Um, and they don't want to be affiliated with him anymore because they're afraid they won't survive with him. Uh, he definitely regrets the shame that he's brought on himself and his family and the legacy. This will be the legacy he leaves behind. Right? But when you're hearing him talk about it, every time that there's an admission of guilt, there's a but. Right? He's like, yeah, I deserve this disgrace, but. <laughs> he literally says, I, I, am, I am flawed. I definitely have flaws. You know, but I think everybody has flaws. Yeah, I am a jerk, but I'm also a humanitarian. But yeah, I'm a, I'm a cheater, but everybody else was cheating, so what are you going to do? Literally, he says this. Um, you know, and, and, this. and here's the thing. Before you just think I'm just railing on Lance Armstrong, um, I want the best for Lance Armstrong, and, and it, it sucks for him. But the reason that I bring it up is this is exactly what we do. This is exactly what we do. Right, we don't really come clean. Uh, there, we, we, we start blaming. We blame other people. We blame our circumstances. Sometimes we blame God for our own sin. Um, we start making excuses. Uh, we exaggerate. Right? Even in prayer, uh, we, we, I think we sometimes make ourselves sound better than we are, almost like we can hide things from God. Right? Or compared to other people, we're really not that bad. Like God judges on a curve. As long as you don't kill anybody and you go to church every once in a while, like you're good. All right, this is the exact same thing what we do. And, and there's, there's no brokenness. Completely different. I mean, how, how, how does that compare to what we see David doing and just falling on your face before God in absolute just embarrassment and saying, God, against you and you alone have I sinned? So, that being said, what, what is the difference maker? Right? If, if one kind of grief and one kind of response leads ultimately to death, sucks the life out of us and leaves us with absolutely nothing, and the other one ultimately produces in us salvation and a life without regrets. What's the difference maker? I want to go back to our original passage. This is what it says. It says, for godly grief produces a repentance, a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Repentance. All right, that's, that's the secret sauce. Right? I mean, get this. What it's telling us is ultimately... Guilt, for the most part, is just neutral. That ultimately, God really, he's not really that concerned about whether you feel bad for what you did, because it's not the same thing as, as repentance. That ultimately, any guilt that we have, if it doesn't lead us to repentance, it is empty and will leave us only empty and dead. But that there's something else for us. So th for the rest of our time together here, I just want to get as crystal clear on repentance as possible. Because this is the thing behind the thing behind the thing. 
Right? We can talk about failure and, and all these different things and, and seeking uh, re restoration, reconciliation with people and, and asking for forgiveness, and those are all well and good. But if we do all those things and we don't get this right, it's all for naught. And so I want to get hone in and get crystal clear on what repentance is and what repentance is not. Now, repentance, biblical repentance, has two things that have to go hand in hand. And if they don't, it's not repentance. It's something else entirely. Repentance is this, okay? It is an internal change of mind followed by an external change of living, right? It's an internal change of mind followed by an external change of living. You take either one of those elements away, and you don't have repentance. You have something else, something else that God rejects. So, for example, the implication is it is very, very possible, if not common, for a Christian to pray the sinner's prayer, uh, to confess their sin, right, kind of one-and-done type thing, to come to church nominally and then walk out the door and be absolutely unchanged and completely unrepentant. Right, this, is, this is the person who knows, they've been around long enough, they know the scriptures enough, to know what's right and what's wrong. They know who God is, they know what God has called them to do, and they say, mm, nah. Well, you know, I, I understand, God, this is who you are and what you called me to do, but ultimately I'm just going to kind of do my own thing. Right, because after all, God is love, he's a gracious God. Right, I prayed the prayer, how much really can God expect me anyway? At least I go to church. Well, God talks about this in Amos 5, and, and put on your seatbelt, because this is, this, this is heavy. God addresses this very thing, and this is what God says in Amos 5, 21. He's addressing his people. He says, I hate, I, no, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your, sol your solemn assemblies, right? Okay, so for those of us in Gentiles, right, 2013, he's saying, I hate it when you go to church. I hate it. Really. Reading on. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the, to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Right, here's what's happening, candidly. This is what God is saying, shut up. Shut up. I'm so sick of you going to church and your words and your singing and you're throwing a few bucks in the plate and it's all for naught. It's all fake. It's all fake. Because you come to church and you acknowledge me with your lips and you say, it's all this internal stuff but it never makes any difference in your life. And you're pretending like it does. Or you're saying, God, yes, I love you. Thank you for your grace and your love. But then you go on living like, I don't exist. And God is saying, I, I absolutely hate that. God hates it when internally we're there, but externally, no, we're not going there. I mean, do you feel how heavy this is? you feel how weighty this is? This should shake us up and mess us up. It's messing me up. All right, that's internal without external. All right, well, what about, what about uh, the other way around? All right, we have external fixing and aligning, but internally, we're not there. Right, so this is a person that really takes their faith seriously. They're zealous religious people, and they just start rooting out all the stuff, going down the checklist. You know what? These are the things I should be doing. I should be going to the church. I should be uh, giving money. I should be reading the Bible. I should be praying, and does all of these things, but never really addresses what's going on in here at all. all right, these, this is the guy 
or the gal who's at church every time the doors open for every meeting gathering under the sun, signs up for everything. They, they can pull from the original Greek text. They can quote to you back and forth, Old Testament, New Testament in their Bible, but they're some of the most uncompassionate, unloving, bitter people you ever meet. They ever know that person? Don't they suck? It's just like, oh, how can you know the truth and be so far from it? Right? How can you lecture me on, on the God who is love and be such a jerk? Right, Pharisees, great example. Took their, religious, their religion way more seriously, uh, really, frankly, than probably any of us. And, and boy, Jesus had some words for them. Matthew 25, verse 23. Listen to Jesus' words. It says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Right, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. Get this. First clean the inside of the cup and dish. First clean the inside, and then the outside also will be clean. He goes on. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. All right, he's not trying to make any friends here. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you, you appear to everybody. Right? You're faking out everybody but me. You, you appear to be people that are righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Right, this, is what, this is where I fear uh, many of us just end up falling. And we may not be like the zealous, like super zealous people that just run people over and that kind of a thing, but we just go through the religious motions. Right, this morning, it's raining, and I didn't get to do this, but I was going to set up uh, a living room right here. Okay, so just, just picture, there's this elaborate living room set. Got a couch, got a chair, lamp, table. And, and I want you to picture for a second that this is, uh, this is your living room. And you've got people that are, that are coming over for dinner, and, and you're getting the house ready for them. And this, um, this is 15 pounds of St. Bernard dog crap. Yeah. Oh, it smells. I was going to open it all up, all up but it uh, looks like we already have a hole. Um, whew, 15 pounds. This was only half of it, yeah. And, and here's what I want you to imagine for a moment. You got, you got friends coming over. This is your house, right? And, and they're coming over, and you're getting ready for them. And, and here's, here's what you're doing. You're, you're cleaning, washing the table, cleaning all around it. Right, maybe you're sweeping, vacuuming, maybe even rearranging the furniture, adding new furniture. You're doing new things for God, right? new religious things, kind of upping your bar, your prayer quotient, your Bible reading quotient. And yet, all the while, is this 15 pounds of St. Bernard crap on the table. Right? How ridiculous would that be to just neglect that? Pretend like it's not there. Maybe you can put like, newspaper over it. You know, maybe nobody will notice. Right? In a minute, you're going you're gonna to notice. You'll notice. <laughs> it stinks. I mean, honestly, how ridiculous is this picture? But this is what we do all the time as good church-going religious folks. Is that we decide there's certain parts of our life it's not accessible to you, God. You can have all of me, but this thing over here, that's That's mine. Right? And we come to church like this. I mean, full house. And we sing songs. And we listen to a sermon. 
and we're just lying to people. I think we've grown so accustomed to, to really presenting ourselves as being better than we are that we think sometimes that we can do that with God, too. Like, he's just fooled. Like, he's like, well, they clean up nice and go to church. I'm sure they're great. You know, as if he doesn't see that inside that we have this stuff that just stinks that we're not dealing with. We're not dealing with the real issue, and it contaminates everything. And putting newspaper over it, pretending like it's not there and rearranging the furniture doesn't accomplish anything. Now, I want to make a, a comment and a little bit of a distinction because I know uh, uh, at Mosaic, we always have people that are part of this community at all times that are part of this community, um, and you would say, you know what, I'm, I'm not a Christian. Uh, I'm exploring. I'm asking questions. Uh, I'm not sure where I land on all this. As of right now, I'm, I'm not in, but, but I'm here. Um, you, have to, you just have to know. All right, first of all, I'm, I love that this is a place where you feel like you can ask questions and doubt and journey. But you need to know that when God says these things, like this all makes me sick, when Jesus says, you hypocrites, he's not talking to you. Because you're here authentically journeying and asking questions. He's addressing his people. He's addressing the posers and the fakers and the people who, who pretend like they've got it all together but, but refuse to let God clean them up. And so you just need to know. And I, I think part of the reason that God gets so angry about this is that he knows, like he long, you got to know, he longs for you to know him. He really does. He longs for you to know him. He wants to free you from the sin that just has you in shackles, whether you realize it or not. He wants to free you to live the life you've been created to live, to have the full abundant life that can only be found, as the scriptures say, in Jesus Christ and nowhere else. He wants that for you. He wants you to have the real thing, not religion, life. But I think he knows that the longer you hang out with posers and fakers and people that just aren't honest and authentic in their brokenness, the longer that you're around that, the more likely you are to realize that you're just about just as Christian as they are and the more likely you are to walk away and think that you've given Jesus a chance and seen what that is and, and just walk away from God rather than experiencing the real thing. So you just have to know that this is not addressed to you. This is addressed to, to me and the, the many like me who at times put on the mask and pretend and we don't let God clean up what's really going on on the inside. Um, that being said... Uh, the cost is great, if I could just be honest with you. Like, it's all or nothing in the end. Right? And you might be in process and asking questions, and I praise God for that. But you got to know, like, in the end, like, God doesn't just want two hours on Sunday. He doesn't want, like, just the religious mumbo-jumbo. He wants all of you. So count the cost and know that you are going to fail and fail often. It will be a process. There are going to be times where you fall so hard on your face. <laughs> That's going to hurt. But you don't stay there as a follower of Jesus. Right? There, there's worldly grief that just kills and destroys and leaves you empty and reeling for answers. But then there's, there's godly grief where we, that leads us to repentance and we turn our face to God and our back to sin 
and we give him access to clean up the crap that's on the inside, and we begin to align our lives, let that overflow into a life that as imperfectly as it is, is aligned with him. And on the other side, there's salvation and life without regrets. Salvation and life without regrets. And that's what, ultimately, that's what God wants for you. And that's what I want for you, too. But you've got a clean house. You've got a clean house. You know, it's funny. Um, every now and then I'll have people say things to me. Like, I, you know, I share lots of stories of, of personal failure all the time. And uh, it's funny. Sometimes people will come up to me pretty regularly, and they'll say something to the extent of, you know, wow, it took a lot of courage to share that. Thank you. And honestly, it doesn't take any courage to share that. It takes lots, just lots of grace. Right? Because I don't have to pretend. I don't, I don't have to, to make myself sound better than I am. Because I realize on the other side of the cross that there is salvation in life without regrets. Like, I have no problem telling you every week, and I will for the rest of my life, for as long as I'm here, that I am nothing more than a sinner saved by grace. And that's what true repentance accomplishes. Right? You look back on your story, and, and you know what? It's not that you would never go back and change things, because there are things that, man, that I would go back and change and do differently if I had the chance. But you look back and you go, wow. I was a piece of work, wasn't I? Can you believe how much evil was in my heart? And God forgave that? Can you believe how good God is? Isn't he amazing? Right, that's freedom. That's freedom. There are things that I would change. But I look at my story and how God uses failure. And that's what he does. He uses failure in redemptive ways. And I look back at my story and I think, you know what? If it was going to take all that falling on my face and all that failure for me to actually fall on my face before God and experience the life and the grace and the forgiveness that's in him, then I choose that path and no other. Because I'm a sinner saved by grace. And I'm saved. And I'm living a life without regrets. Because God is redeeming even my weakness. And that's what God longs for, for us. I mean, can you just imagine with me for a moment what it would be like to be a part of a church where we just live this? Imperfectly. Oh, yeah. Lots of failure. Oh, yeah. Definitely. But full of people that don't pretend. No mask, no posing, no pretending to be better than you are, no needing a safe face, but just being able to authentically say, man, I am such a sinner saved by grace. Isn't God good? Man, he's good. Do you know how freeing that is? Can you just think about how irresistible that would be? Right, that's what God wants for you and for us. And I pray for that for us. But we got a clean house. we got a clean house. 1 John 1.9 says this. It says, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to purify us. Uh, it's time to clean house. Here's, here's, we're going to do something, um, and this is going to be scary. Band, worship band, you guys can come on up. Um, this might be a little scary for some, but here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to give you a chance to, to just come clean. Uh, the one thing that all of us have in common is at different parts in our life, uh, for me, every day, probably for you too, there's crap going on in here. There's stuff that I need to continually repent of, internally and then externally. 
And so we're going to give you a chance to do that and to come clean. And there might be stuff in your life that you know about and God knows about, but nobody else knows about. All right, it's time to clean house. It's time to clean house. And we want to pray for you if you have the courage to step up and do that. Because on the other side is salvation and life without regrets. James 5.16 says this, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. During the next, uh, the next few minutes, what we're going to do is the band's going to jam. We're all going to stand. We're going to spend some time reflecting, give you a little bit of time to process. We're going to sing a song. Uh, I totally forgot to take offerings, so we're going to do that too. Um, and during this time, there's going to be a few of us lined up up here. And uh, I would encourage you, if you've got crap in your life, to just come clean. To come up, confess it, and let us pray for you. And this isn't like counseling time, life advice time. Uh, this is a chance to be like, you know what? I am totally into porn up to my neck. And I just confess that. We'll say, all right, we'll pray for you. You know what? I am totally bitter and just pissed at my wife or my husband, and I am not forgiving him, and I'm holding stuff over his head, and I just need to confess that. We'll say, all right, let's pray about that. You know what? I stole. I lied. I, you fill in the blank. And we're just going to pray for you because there's freedom, and there's salvation, and there's a life without regret on the other side. And here's the thing. At the end, like the band's just going to keep playing. You can stick around. You can leave. But the last word that I want you to hear, and you have to know, on the other side of repentance and confession, there's freedom. So I know that this is a heavy message. It should be. And that this is shaking some of us up, and some of you don't like me very much right now. And that's okay too. But you got to know that on the other side of repentance is freedom. And if you are a Christian and you've been struggling with guilt for something that happened a long time ago and it just follows you, the reason for that is not that you're not forgiven, and there's not grace, it's because you haven't repented, because God wants to free you from that. If you're here and you've been journeying and seeking and asking questions, and you would never have considered yourself a Christ follower, you have never come before him and fallen on your face before him, and surrendered your life into his hands, and accepted his free gift of grace, and you want to do that now, and you know that it is real and it is time, then we would encourage you to come up, and we will pray for you and rejoice. So that being said, uh, let's enter into this time of worship and confession together as a community. So if you would, let's stand. Let's do that.